to drive home the point that there is only one gospel and it will never be changed. It will never be altered. Paul says, what if someday, what if someday I, I were to return to you, O Galatians, I were to come back to you with a different message than the one I brought you a few years ago? And what if a holy angel from God came to you and preached a message contrary to the message of faith in Christ that I originally preached to you? What if? Paul's question to the Galatians may have been hypothetical, but creatures claiming to be angels apparently have appeared before other people over the centuries and given different Gospels. Paul told the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 8, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached you, he is to be accursed. Nevertheless, people have tried to present other gospels, including the ones who went from Jerusalem to Antioch, saying that the Gentiles had to be circumcised before they could be saved. Those Judaizers so upset the Antioch church that they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to get it sorted out. The story is told in Acts chapter 15, and that's where we are today on First by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And today we come to the conclusion of Pastor Steve's first message in this series about the Jerusalem Council, which might be the most important church council in history, because those men, with God's help, clarified for all the generations to come the plan of salvation. Let's look some more now at Paul's words to the Galatians to see how they help us understand what took place in Jerusalem at the council. Here's Pastor Steve. See, the Galatians were deceived into deserting the Lord by some very plausible-sounding arguments by men who spoke just enough biblical truth to sound believable and credible, and these Christians fell for it. Now, I wonder if we would have responded any differently to men like these than the Galatians did. I hope so, but there's no guarantee that we would just because we're Christians. And I say that because there are many Christians today who seem to have no discernment, no discernment in distinguishing between those who preach the true gospel of grace in Christ and false gospel teachers who claim to be preaching the Bible, but who in reality are just promoting self And human effort is the way to find fulfillment and happiness. And just in case you think that the reason the Galatians fell for such error was because, well, they really weren't true Christians. Well, you, being a true Christian, that you are immune to such deception. Think again. Because the Apostle Paul considered the Galatians to be true believers. I remember when I was preaching through Galatians years ago, a young man questioned me about this. He said, well, the Galatians, how could they possibly have been true believers? Well, they were considered true believers by Paul. And I say that because throughout this letter, Paul often speaks of the Holy Spirit working in their lives and even being in them the way he is in all Christians. Chapter three, verse three, he says, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? That's the Holy Spirit. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That means that you started off the Christian life by the Spirit of God living in you and enlightening you. But you're moving away from that. Again, in chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, calls them sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's true of only believers. Paul also refers to them as brethren. 
And in calling them brethren, he means that he considers them his brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. And here's something important to know if we're really going to understand what was taking place in the hearts and actions of the Galatians. Take a look once again at verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Now, I want you to notice that this action of deserting the Lord is in the present tense, which means that they were only in the process, in the process of defecting from grace to law. It wasn't an accomplished fact yet. In other words, they were presently engaged in deserting God and the gospel, but they hadn't fully carried it out and finished this desertion, which means there's still hope for them. They're entertaining this. They're moving in that direction, but they haven't arrived there yet. So for the most part, the Galatians then, we'd have to conclude, for the most part, they were true believers in Christ who were only in the process of falling for serious error. But what this reveals is that you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you and I are just as capable of being deceived by error as these people were. And if you don't think so, then consider this. How many Christians love the preaching ministry of a man like Joel Osteen, even though he never mentions sin in his sermons and the need to forsake sin, the need to turn to Christ to be saved. That's not mentioned. Listen, there is no gospel where sin is not mentioned because there is no need for Christ's death to save you if there is no sin to be saved from. Or consider this. Only a few years ago, there were a number of prominent Christians, leaders in the evangelical church, who signed certain documents stating that Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ because they said there is agreement between us on the essence of Christianity. And what they specifically pointed out is that we all agree that justification is by faith in Christ. Folks, that's not true. Not at all. Roman Catholicism very clearly and emphatically denies justification by faith in Christ alone. Even though they may use words that sound like they believe it, they do not believe it. Or consider just how many Christians attend churches where all they basically hear is what I would call fluff, not the gospel. Now, they may hear how Jesus can help them achieve financial success or enable them to live according to family values or cope in a world filled with stress and pressure and all, all other kinds of practical issues like that. But that isn't the gospel. That isn't how a sinner can be justified before God. It's just fluff. The kind of fluff that tickles people's ears and makes them feel good about themselves. And listen, churches like this that often major on this fluff, they're just filled, filled with people, many of whom are true Christians know Christ as their Savior, but for some reason, they're just attracted to that kind of teaching, just as the Galatians were attracted to the teaching of the Jewish false teachers who called their message by human effort the gospel. It just makes people feel good about themselves. It's something I'm doing. I'm achieving. But as Paul goes on to say in verse 7 and following, It is not the real gospel, not at all. And the men who preached it were not real Christians. Notice verse 7 of Galatians 1, which Paul says is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul explains that what the false teachers had taught them, it wasn't another gospel because God has only one gospel message. That's all. 
And that is the message of salvation through faith alone in his son. Now, these men may have called their message the gospel, but it was only the gospel in their own eyes, not in God's sight. See, far from giving them good news, and that is what the word gospel means, good news. What these men were doing to the Galatians in preaching this this brand of doctrine, as Paul tells them, it was disturbing you. It wasn't good news. It was disturbing you. That is to say, instead of helping the Galatians, it was troubling them. This particular word that's translated disturbing, it literally means to shake back and forth. The thought here is that these false teachers were troubling the Galatians by shaking up their theological foundations and confusing them. Confusing them because, well, they would have now suspicions about Paul being an apostle. Did he mislead us? It would confuse them about having doubts concerning the message that he preached, the message of salvation by by faith in Christ. And the specific way they caused such trouble was by, as Paul tells us in verse 7, they distorted the gospel. They distorted it. He writes, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what does Paul mean by this? Well, this word that is translated distort, it has an important thought behind it. It means to reverse something, to turn something into just the opposite. In other words, it means to pervert it. That's exactly what the false teachers were doing with the gospel. They were perverting it by teaching that salvation comes by human effort. In addition to faith in Christ, they were perverting the gospel, turning it upside down, making it into just its opposite. That's always what law does to grace. It reverses the character of grace, which is God's favor and kindness in Christ shown to undeserving people like us, apart from any human effort on our parts. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix these two. See, to believe that any kind of religious performance, baptism, circumcision, anything like that, saves you, that isn't a a minor issue because it corrupts, it perverts the gospel, the true gospel, which is precisely the point that Paul is making to the Galatians, that there is no other gospel than the one that I preach to you. And to prove his point that there is only one gospel message, the one of faith in Christ, Paul proceeds to paint a very strange-sounding scenario in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. To drive home the point that there is only one gospel, and it will never be changed, it will never be altered, Paul says, what if someday, what if someday I, I were to return to you, O Galatians, I were to come back to you with a different message than the one I brought you a few years ago. And what if a holy angel from God came to you and preached a message contrary to the message of faith in Christ that I originally preached to you? What if? Now, Paul says that if either of these two situations were to ever take place, if he or even an angel from heaven preached a new gospel to them, contrary to the one that he originally preached to them, he said that he's to be accursed. If anyone comes like this, even me or an angel, we're to be accursed. Now, understand, Paul is only being hypothetical when he says this, because he knows that he's not going to preach a different gospel to the Galatians. And certainly a holy angel from heaven isn't going to come and give them a new gospel. 
So he's just being hypothetical to make a point. However, in verse 9, he turns from the hypothetical to what was actually happening in Galatia. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So I hope you understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the men who were preaching to them, salvation by law, they are damned by God. This word accursed is a translation of the word anathema. And it means to be under a divine curse. It means to be set aside by God for destruction. In other words, those who preach and believe that salvation is by human effort, they are damned by God to hell forever. Tragic. Tragic. And Paul is not being vindictive here. This isn't a personal outburst of of anger on his part. He's just speaking the truth. And how could this not be the truth? How could this not be the case? If salvation is by faith alone, then there is no other message that saves one soul. Then those who reject salvation by faith alone in Christ, they are doomed to hell. Where they will suffer the punishment of divine wrath for their sins forever and ever. They have rejected the only way of salvation. So now, going back to Acts 15, I hope you can see why this was such a serious issue and why it was such a crisis that the church of Antioch was facing because men from Judea had come to their church and were telling these Gentile believers the same damning heresies that their counterparts had told the Galatians, that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were preaching another gospel, distorting the gospel of grace, and Paul and Barnabas were absolutely Alarmed, So alarmed that we read in verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Having heard what these men were teaching, these precious believers in Antioch, and, and knowing what was at stake, namely the purity of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ and his death for salvation, the future of the church, knowing all this was at stake, Paul and Barnabas strongly objected to their teaching and a vigorous debate ensued between the apostolic missionaries and the false teachers. And when nothing could be settled by the debate, the church made a decision. They decided to send Paul and Barnabas and some others from the church up to Jerusalem to discuss the problem with the apostles and the elders of the church. there, looking for them to make a decision regarding this matter. And so we read in verse 3, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Now, I wonder if it strikes you as it did me initially. It strikes you as a little strange that Luke should include in such a critical passage about the gospel the areas that Paul and Barnabas and the others passed through on their way to Jerusalem. But he does this for a specific reason. He's not giving us meaningless travelogue information. No, what he's doing is when he tells us they passed through Venetia and Samaria, he has a purpose in mind. Those areas were populated by those who were less Jewish people, but less attached to the Mosaic law than most Jewish people. And the believers there, he tells us, they rejoiced when Paul and Barnabas spoke about the conversion of the Gentiles. In other words, what Luke wants us to understand is that other believers, the majority of believers, supported Paul and Barnabas. They supported them in their teaching that Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ alone. They wanted us to understand they're in the majority, just a small minority that believes otherwise. 
And after passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, Luke tells us in verse 4, they finally arrived in the city of Jerusalem. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So after arriving in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, we read, are officially received by the congregation, the apostles, the elders of the church. And having been welcomed by them, Paul and Barnabas gave the same report to them that they gave to the church, their home church in Antioch. They, they report all that God had done with them on their missionary journey, no doubt emphasizing the many Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ and had been saved. But there were some in the church who were not pleased at all upon hearing this, because we read in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So what we discover from this verse is that some men who were in the meeting, part of the Jerusalem church, who were from the Jewish sect known as the Pharisees, had come to faith in Christ. That's what the text said. Now, known for their rigid adherence to the Mosaic law, these men were not pleased at all to hear that Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ because these Gentiles were not being told that they had to live by the law, especially the law of circumcision. That's why they speak up in this meeting. They say it's necessary to circumcise them, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, it would appear that these believing Pharisees were not the same men who went to Antioch. It would appear they don't hold to the exact same views that these men, these men from Judea had espoused in Antioch. See, the men who came to Antioch insisted that circumcision was necessary for salvation. That's very clear. These men then who came to Antioch, they were not believers at all because they were not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. But notice that's not the case with these Pharisees at the church in Jerusalem. Luke specifically calls them Pharisees who had believed, indicating that these men were believers, meaning that they had trusted Christ for their salvation. And what they said is different. Even the way it's worded, it's different from those false teachers in Antioch. You see, they said that circumcision was necessary for salvation. But here, these Pharisees who were believers didn't say that. They simply said that the Gentile believers need to keep the law of Moses. They said nothing about for salvation. In other words, they felt that obedience to the law was a requirement after you're saved. That's what they were saying. Now, they weren't talking about keeping the Ten Commandments. Because all believers are to keep that. All believers are to keep the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are God's unchanging moral standards. No, what these men, these Pharisee believers were talking about were the ceremonial laws that were uniquely given to Israel. Like eating only kosher food, observing Sabbath days, Jewish feasts. Now they were wrong. They were wrong in this assertion because all of these ceremonial and ritual laws Ended with the death of Christ. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. That's the message that Paul will tell others, especially the, the Colossians. He tells them that these things were shadows, mere shadows that pointed to Christ. But once Christ came, these shadowy signs, they're no longer needed. In fact, folks, that's the whole point of the vision of all kinds of, of animals that God gave Peter in Acts chapter 10. The Lord told Peter, arise and eat. And Peter protested, Lord, I've never eaten non-kosher food in my life. And the Lord in essence said, well, now you can. Now you can. You can eat any food you want because those dietary kosher laws, 
They're over. So this is the situation, folks. That was before the apostles. Some were claiming that circumcision was necessary for Gentiles to be saved. Paul and Barnabas strongly disagreed. Others were saying that Gentile believers still needed to be circumcised and to keep all of the law, even if it wasn't for salvation. And so with these matters, pressing matters before them, the section closes with verse six, saying the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. And next week we will begin to see what they decided. But today it's important that you understand that salvation is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Nothing you can do. It's not part Christ, part your performance. It's all of Christ. All of Christ. Because his substitutionary death on the cross, it is totally sufficient for your salvation. Therefore, I wonder if today you can say with that great hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Make sure that you're wholly leaning on Christ's name. It's also important that you understand that men like those false teachers who came to Antioch, they they still exist. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they will tell you that Christ is not enough They will tell you that you need to do something to complete your salvation. Your performance is necessary if you hope to be saved. So listen, be discerning. Listen. Make them prove their point by Scripture. Don't fall for their lies. They are subtle. Be careful. Those who don't preach the clear gospel, they've distorted the gospel. And if you let them, they will ruin you spiritually. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Christ is our steady anchor. Lord, what would we do without him? Lord, you only have the words of eternal life. You only are the one who offers eternal life based on your death on the cross. May each one here be very clear in their minds as to what the gospel is. May we not be taken in by those who who would pervert the gospel by words that are subtle, and even using biblical language, but not the gospel. Lord, I pray, I pray for all here that they would make sure that their hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Our works are not the means of salvation, but they are a result of salvation. But in the early days of the church, there was still a lot of discussion about that fact. Thanks to that first church council in Jerusalem, and some of Paul's epistles, we now know the true gospel. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside, I know you'd be very welcome. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. And the office phone number is 727-441-1714. Call or check the website for service times and other information. The web address is lakesidechapel.com. Today's broadcast concludes Pastor Steve's first message in this five-message series about what is necessary to be saved. The entire sermon is available on a free audio CD if you call Lakeside and ask for message number 61, the Jerusalem Council, part one. The phone number is 727-441-1714. 
Another listening option is to visit the message archive page at versebyverseradio.org. All of our broadcasts are available there for you to stream or download at no cost. For your convenience, there's also a free podcasting service if you'd like to make sure you don't miss any future lessons. Verse by Verse is a ministry that depends on faithful and generous listeners who respond when God moves them to give. We try to make that easy for you if he's speaking to you about that. Click on the giving link and you'll find that it's very easy to give online. Or give over the phone by calling Lakeside at the number I just gave out earlier, 727-441-1714. And the web address again is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Can you imagine being in a church picnic and witnessing one of your elders chewing out another elder for some sin he had committed (laughs) right in front of everyone? Talk about awkward. Well, imagine one apostle doing something like that with another apostle. We'll consider that tension-filled scene on the next Verse by Verse.